Norma McCorvey had a rough life. She was abused as a child and dropped out of school after ninth grade. She spent time in a reform school in Gainesville, Texas. That's the other Gainesville. And she was raped as a teenager. She was married at age 16 to a man who abused her. She used drugs and alcohol to blur the hard edges of her life. And she got involved sexually with both men and women. She drifted through a series of dead-end jobs, including working as a bartender and with a traveling carnival. When she was 21 and on her third pregnancy, she became forever linked to one of the most divisive issues to confront our nation. Poor, pregnant, and desperate, she became the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit filed to challenge the strict anti-abortion laws in Texas. Norma used the pseudonym Jane Roe for the case. It was appealed to the Supreme Court and a ruling was given four to six years ago, legalizing abortion in all 50 states and releasing a storm of protests that continues to this day. Norma had no idea that her signature would one day make her an international figure. She was uneasy with her newfound celebrity status. She also became increasingly uncomfortable working with the abortion industry because she saw firsthand the horror that she'd helped unleash. Eventually, Norma's worst nightmare came true. The controversial pro-life group Operation Rescue moved next door to the abortion clinic where she worked. It quickly became a violent circus of protest and counter-protest. But in the middle of the chaos, Norma met a little girl called Emily. Emily was the seven-year-old daughter of Rhonda Mackey, one of the office workers at Operation Rescue. Emily was a cute little girl with a big smile. At the age of seven, she was already a little evangelist and loved to tell Miss Norma, as she called her, about Jesus. It became a most unusual friendship. Emily, the daughter of a worker, one of the most fervent pro-life groups, and Norma, the reluctant post-the-girl for the pro-abortion movement. But Norma actually looked forward to the days when Emily played on the bitterly contested sidewalk outside of their offices. She treasured the hugs that Emily loved to give. But she winced when Emily asked her why she let all those babies die inside the clinic. Emily didn't like what Norma was doing, but she didn't stop loving her. And that made Norma even more uncomfortable. Emily's mother, Rhonda, also became, began to reach out to Norma, and the two became good friends, but it didn't make any sense. These two women should have been bitter enemies, but somehow the love of a little girl had bridged the gap. Miss Norma, why don't you go to church with us tonight? Emily asked. And she kept asking, but Norma always found a way to put her off until one day during the summer of 1995. I can't, honey, Norma replied, but I'll go with you next week. And then she realized she had made a promise that she would have to keep. 
When the time came, Emily and her family took Norma out to dinner before the evening service to settle her nerves. And then they headed for church, and it wasn't clear who was the most nervous. Norma, who was afraid that lightning would strike as soon as she set foot in the church, or Emily's parents, who were afraid that the pastor might ruin everything with a boring sermon. They do happen. And one person who was not nervous was Emily. She was so excited that her new friend, Norma, was coming to her church. Towards the end of his sermon, the pastor asked the congregation a simple question. Is anyone tired of living a sinner's life? No one replied, but to Norma's astonishment, she realized that she had raised her hand. Then I want you to come up to the altar and meet Jesus, he said. Up she went. And then she began to weep. Nobody told her what to say. But she began to cry out to the Lord and ask his forgiveness for all of the evil that she had done and for the continuing horror of abortion. And then she stopped crying. She didn't know how long it took, but she knew that she'd been forgiven. She was filled with peace, a peace that she'd never known. And instead of weeping, she began to struggle with an uncomfortable ear-to-ear smile. Then it dawned on her. Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Rowe, of of Roe v. Wade, had just become a Christian. Emily, of course, was deliriously happy and giggled all the way home, as seven-year-old girls want to do. Norma was baptized on August the 8th, 1995, and she committed her life to serving the Lord and helping women save babies. Norma McCorvey, who's once an icon of destruction, had now become a beacon of hope. She stayed, she stayed true to her newfound faith until her death two years ago. She was a living demonstration of the life-changing love that Jesus proclaimed in that sermon at his, host, at his hometown of Nazareth. You heard the gospel. The congregation was his own family and friends, people who knew him, people with whom he had shared his life. Nazareth was a small town in Galilee and had some of the pluses and minuses of small town life. They knew everybody, but they also had some rather serious prejudices. Outsiders were not exactly welcome, and they had no time for Gentiles. Some of their rabbis taught that God created Gentiles so that, they, he, that he would have something to use as firewood for the fires of hell. And many agreed with him. They were also quick to condemn people whose lives were out of order, believing that poverty, sickness, and oppression were signs that a person had had been disobedient to God and therefore someone to be shunned. Sadly, that still happens today. But then along comes Jesus. It was the Sabbath. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now you do understand that sitting down didn't mean he'd finished. And that tradition indeed, still in many places today, the seat, the chair is the place of teaching. Well, we have chairs at universities. So he sat down, prepared to teach. Everyone's waiting. And then he said something absolutely amazing. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone was shocked because they knew that this portion of Isaiah was referring to the coming of the Messiah. And here was Jesus, the hometown boy, applying it to himself. And notice what the text says. First of all, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Anointed by the Spirit. You know, I grew up in the Baptist church and I'm enormously grateful for the heritage of faith that it gave me. It was in the Baptist church where I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It was also where I came to know and trust the Bible as the revealed word of God. I'm eternally grateful for the Baptist church and the foundations it gave me, but there was one thing missing. I heard nothing about the Holy Spirit. Now, there was this strange character called the Holy Ghost. I didn't like ghosts, and so I wasn't too impressed, but he always came at the end of the prayer, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we said it quietly because we weren't quite sure who he was or he might show up. And for me, the Christian message was simple. Love Jesus, try harder. That was it. But that isn't what Jesus taught. Towards the end of his earthly ministry, he told the disciples that they were to stay in the city, that is to stay in Jerusalem, until they were clothed with power from on high. They were to wait until they were anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now they'd spent three years with Jesus at the most intense Bible school you can ever imagine. And yet that still wasn't enough. He said, you need power. You need the Holy Spirit. And of course, as you know, that happened on the first Pentecost. But it didn't stop there. As the prophet Joel had anticipated, the time had come for God to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And even your servants, male and female, will be anointed by the Spirit and they shall prophesy. So what was a Bible-believing Baptist boy to do? Well, in 1972, I was finally confronted with the reality that no matter how hard I tried, it was never enough. I needed the Spirit of God to do the work of God. And I received the anointing of the Holy Spirit and my life has been forever changed. Now, for me, there was no thunder and lightning. I would have liked a bit of flame or something, but it was very quiet I was praying alone in, the, in an empty church, but the Holy Spirit came upon me in a profound way and changed me from the inside out and continues to do so. You see, the first mark of the Messiah's ministry is the anointing of the Spirit, and we all need it. Secondly, the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he said, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The second mark of the Messiah's ministry, is that it is good news 
for the poor. These were the people that society had marginalized, the men and women that nobody cared about, the pregnant teenagers, the homeless widows, the nameless refugees, the outcasts. And in case you're thinking I'm pushing the text too hard, let me direct you to Jesus' own interpretation in the next few verses. In verse 25, Jesus said to them, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. See, they were asking Jesus to show them a few miracles, but he wouldn't swallow the bait. Instead, he told them two famous Old Testament stories, both of which made the very same point. God cares about the outsiders, people that we despise, the lonely widow and the Syrian leper, both Gentiles, but both of whom were blessed by God. You see, the good news is that every human life is of immense value. Rich or poor, black or white, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, handicapped or high achiever, God has no favorites. But there's more to it than that. Jesus also came to show the depth of God's love, a love that knows no limits, a love that can overcome the most horrendous sins, a love that can make all things new. Do I hear an amen? See, a love that enabled a seven-year-old girl called Emily to show a woman called Norma that her battered and broken life could be transformed into a life of beauty. Now, friends, that is very good news. Jesus also said, and the prophet Isaiah had foretold, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. See, a third mark of the Messiah's ministry is the proclamation of freedom for prisoners. But what kind of prisoners? Now, if Jesus had meant all of the people locked up in Roman jails, then this proclamation would have been a cruel joke. His ministry did not result in the abolition of the penal system and the emptying of all the prisons, but it did lead to something far more long-lasting. You see, there are far more people in prisons without bars than those with them. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for people who are in bondage to addiction, fear, hopelessness, and past hurts. Jesus came to set people free from the lies of the enemy who would have them believe that their worth is somehow a function of their ability or their attractiveness. Jesus came to set men and women free from the cheap lie that, that sex is merely something you do and babies are only valuable if they're convenient. Jesus came to set people free from all kinds of sin, especially the sin of pride, the sin that places us above other people. That sin is the cruelest prison of all because it closes us to the love of God and locks us away from one another. But that's not all. Jesus was also sent to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. And while we rejoice in this promise of physical healing, we must pray for it whenever we have the opportunity. But we must also acknowledge that there is a blindness that has got nothing to do with these physical eyes. It's far more serious than it because it can lead to eternal separation. 
There is a blindness that is caused by hardness of heart. It refuses to see the hand of God at work in the world around us and refuses to believe in his word. That word is to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But today, many people are blind to God's revealed truth and they stumble in darkness and confusion. And that's especially true when it comes to dealing with the sacredness of every human being, young or old, with or without handicap, born or unborn. So many people are blinded to the truth of God, which proclaims that there is no life that is worthless. Sometimes this blindness comes from well-meaning compassion for women who are in the midst of agonizing situations. Love them we must, but there is always another way. It takes more than good wishes to be healed of this blindness. Friends, I'm convinced it takes deliverance, which is also what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to release the oppressed. The fifth mark of the Messiah's ministry is to release the oppressed. And there are many oppressed people in this world today. Some of them are oppressed by life, situations that seem to be without hope. Some of them are oppressed by religion. That was especially true in Jesus' day. People were very religious, but their religion did not lead to freedom. Instead, it led to bondage and despair. Other people are oppressed by demonic forces. Whatever the source, a key mark of the Messiah's ministry is deliverance from oppression. And Angela and I saw this deliverance at work a great many times during our ministry in New York City. We had an evening congregation that was mainly made up of homeless people. And we saw God work mighty miracles in that service week after week. Remember one particular woman that came to that service, her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a very angry woman. She came armed with a big knife that she kind of waved around and she wore a military kind of camouflage uniform and cursed at everyone. Now, I was at the front of the church, and Elizabeth was sitting at the back, so I did what any wise pastor would do. I asked my wife, Angela, to go sit with her. Uh, and so she sat at the back and watched Elizabeth and tried to cool things down. But Elizabeth was very angry. And Alan Lee didn't try to lead worship. Elizabeth cursing me at the back, and I'm just trying to praise the Lord, and she's swearing at me. But we carried on and we managed to worship. The next week she came back and I greeted her. And she didn't curse quite as loud. And then after a couple of weeks she kept quiet. And I noticed she was kind of moving forward. She was finding out that, she, that we could be trusted. I had a way of doing prayers in that service that didn't follow the kind of the normal Anglican way of um, you know, written prayers and stuff. I said, who needs prayer? And I had a microphone and a walk around, a microphone that worked. And I would uh, walk around, and I'm sorry, forgive me for that. Uh, and I would say, who needs prayer? And people would put their hands up and i say, what do you need prayer for? And they'd say all kinds of things. You know, I need prayer to, to see my kids. You know, Child Protective Services take my kids away and I, I really would like to see them. Or I'm struggling with addiction. So we had that. Then there's one particular night, Elizabeth stood up, put her hand up. said, I need prayer. And all the men there said, oh, yes. And so I walked up to Elizabeth and I said, Elizabeth, how can we pray for you? She said, Father, my heart is hard. 
I don't want to live that way. I'm angry. I don't want to be angry anymore. I took a lot of guts to stand up and to confess that in front of this rather motley crew. Elizabeth, I said, we'll pray for you. And I prayed and the amen at the end was very loud. And uh, she sat down. And then week after week, I noticed that God began to deliver her from that anger and that bitterness. Didn't happen immediately. She kept coming, kept getting closer to the front. She left the knife at home. That was a big step. And there was a softening in her person as God began to work on her. That's what I mean by deliverance. And she began to smile and even enter into worship. One more mark of the Messiah's ministry is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of proclamation. A year when people will come back into friendship with God. Now, the Jewish people understood that and they knew that was a promise, but somehow over the decades and the centuries they'd lost sight of it. And here at last, Jesus came to declare the good news of God's favor for all people. And that astonished them. They could handle miracles. They could handle all kinds of things. But the idea that God loved everybody was almost too much to grasp. That God wanted to show all people favor was almost too much. And friends, it's too much for some people today. The very thought that God believes that every human life is worth dying for is disturbing. It doesn't mean that God approves of the sin that is in all of us, but it does mean that God wants to forgive us and draw us to himself. This is the year of the Lord's favor, and God wants everyone to experience it. But how can that happen? How can we bring this good news to a world that is so preoccupied with sin and self? See, that's the work of evangelism. And that's what we're all called to do. And it starts with us because as followers of Jesus, we've been given the same job description as the Messiah himself. And let me remind you of your job description. I know there's a lot of points, but I'll go through them again. First, we must be anointed by the Spirit. We cannot do the work of God without the Spirit of God. And friends, if you don't know that you actually have been anointed by the Spirit, today would be a good day to say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. I can't do this job without your Spirit. Secondly, what we do, how we live, must be good news for the poor. And that's a question I always challenge every congregation I visit, every clergyman I know. Are you? Is this church good news for the poor? It's a key question. Is your life good news for the poor? Or is it irrelevant to the poor, or even worse, bad news. Three, we're about setting people free. Freedom for prisoners. Four, recovery of sight to the blind. Five, release for the oppressed. And finally, the proclamation of the Lord's favor. But let me get practical. How does this work? Well, let's go back to my opening story because about Norma and the 11-year-old and 7-year-old Emily because she's a wonderful example of effective evangelism. Emily, seven years old, was good news. 
She didn't just speak it or teach it, she lived it. Her life was a blessing and an encouragement to Norma. She didn't let the barriers of fear and prejudice stand in her way. Also notice she brought freedom to Norma. Freedom from the prison of hatred and despair. Freedom to laugh and cry. Freedom to love again. Emily opened Norma's eyes to the evil that had become her familiar friend by speaking the truth in love with all of the innocence of a child. And by introducing her to the love of her friend Jesus within a community of faith, Emily helped release Norma from years of oppression that had almost destroyed her. Emily shows us that evangelism is not so much a technique as a way of life and a way of love. And we all need to learn the basics of our beliefs so that we are ready to share the reason for the hope that's within us whenever people ask. But we also need to demonstrate the reality of our faith. So, how do we do this? Well, listen again to the opening words of our gospel lesson. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. We need the very same anointing because without the Spirit, evangelism is impossible. But with the Holy Spirit's power, we can all look forward to an exciting adventure. Do we hear an amen? Do I hear an amen? Amen doesn't mean, oh dear, he's almost finished. It means, yes, I agree, amen. Mm. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we bless you for Emily, for the witness of so many children. We thank you, Father, that no one is beyond the reach of your love, as demonstrated by Norma. We pray, Lord, that you would help us reach out to the people around us with the good news of your loves and set them free to become the people you would have them be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.